Welcome to the podcast from In Church, Phoenix. This message is, E Pluribus Unum, with Pastor Dan Broder, March 12, 2017. We are so fired up, and I, I really, um, I don't want it to seem overstated, so I hope I can do a good job of communicating what it is that God's placed in my heart. But I, I really honestly feel like this is a message a year in the making, and so um I, I want to be able to capture everything and, and communicate everything that I feel like God has spoken to us and, and is revealing to us. And some of it might come off um, intense. I just want you to know that I'm, I am passionate about this message this morning because I feel like um, I've, I feel like I've tasted something so profoundly, not powerful, but something so profoundly real and life-changing. And I, I, as a person, I can look and go, man, I know when God gives you a vision and you believe in that vision, it can come to pass. And I, I've been in ministry for um, almost half, well, no, half my life. So we've, I've been in ministry since I was, uh, oh, no, more than half my life, I guess now at this point. I'll just say half my life. But I've been doing ministry since I was 18, almost since the time I really committed my life to the Lord. And um, and and. Uh, and I've heard lots of people, met lots of people, and talked to lots of people who always are like, "Oh, what if we should do this, or we should do that, or we should do this." And I'm and I'm constantly, even through the refuge, I can't tell you how many people come in. And they're like, "Oh my gosh, this is great! I'm going to help you." And then probably one in a hundred actually do what they say. Oh, I want to do this. So I hear people all the time. So for me, what I'm commu- when I'm saying I've I, I've tasted something that's not only powerful, I'm constantly meeting people who say things that I think, man, that's powerful, right? That's powerful. But I, I finally, I'm saying we've tasted something that's powerful and real or maybe um, powerful and possible at the same time where you look at it and you go, what? And then you go, it's happening. And, and that's what I want to share about this morning because I think God is doing something and calling us as a church to do something radical um, and something that will change the world if you'll, um, if you'll just bear with me. This morning I've Entitled the message, E Pluribus Unum. E, any students want to tell me what that means? Jay? Oh, my gosh. Public education. (laughs) It means out of many, one. It's our national motto. E Pluribus Unum means out of many, one. And this morning, that's what I titled the message because I want to communicate how important it is that we understand the gospel according to this motto, which is out of many, one. And before, what I want to uh, communicate is, is uh, and to set it out there, is I'm going to try and recap the conference for you. So we were in Australia. It was awesome. Um, but I want to recap the conference for you. And so I'm going to share just some key points that really stuck out to me and Reagan. Um, first is the what, why, and how. And I'm going to read from Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Um, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. He began teaching in the synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year 
of the Lord. This was Jesus' first act of ministry. This was the first public recorded message Jesus ever gave. This was the verse that Jesus chose. When we look at it, and I think it matters here, let's to put this into the story of Jesus, you have to realize what had just happened. Jesus went to the Jordan. He was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him. Immediately, the devil tempted him. Jesus was baptized, so Jesus made his public profession of faith. Jesus went out. That's what baptism is. It's your public profession of faith. Jesus went out, was baptized. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. The Lord said, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. Then immediately, the devil set him a trial. Immediately, the devil tempted Jesus, all right? Satan literally went and tempted Jesus. So Jesus went from baptism to being tried by the devil and overcoming to walking in to this setting. So he goes through and he begins speaking in the synagogues. He finds himself in Nazareth. And the first public recorded message that he gives is Isaiah. And I want to point out just two things in this passage. One, he looked for it. The book of Isaiah was handed to him, and the Bible says he found this verse. He went to where this verse was. He didn't just open up the book of Isaiah and say, I'm going to make my reading today. He went in the book of Isaiah, and remember, they didn't have books, they had scrolls. So he unrolled this scroll until he found the verse. He kept, you can think, he kept going. He went to this verse. Given the scroll, he said, this is the verse I'm looking for. He went to Isaiah 61, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And the second thing I want to point out is he stood up to read. In the conference, he pointed this out because I just thought it was poetic. And he said, Jesus took a stand. He took a stand. What was his stand? Where did he choose to take that stand? Where is the place in which he said, this is what I'm standing for, right? We know that saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Jesus stood for something. And what he stood for was Isaiah 61 in which he said, I have been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. I've been sent to proclaim release to the captives, sight to the blind, and set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Here we find Jesus saying, this is what I'm taking a stand for, and it matters. All of this should matter. He looked for this passage, which means it was deliberate. It was on purpose. It was intentional. He stood to read. Jesus takes the stand right here at this verse, and he announces his intentions for his ministry. What are his intentions? I have come to seek and save that which is lost. That's what Jesus stood up and declared that day. I have come to seek and save that which has been lost. He stands for this cause, the cause of the poor, the downtrodden, the hurt, the brokenhearted, the sick, the lame, the unwanted, the forgotten, the abused, the lowly, and insignificant. You know, when Pastor Scott was announcing the fact that we're going to start a class for beginners, a foundation class, I thought to myself, man, if you go to a church that has no need for a foundations class, don't go to that church. Because that means there aren't new believers, If you go to a church that doesn't have a foundations class, I say, think about it for a second. Why don't you have a foundations class? Why aren't new people coming in and getting saved and hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's happening? If you don't have a foundations class, it's because you don't have a need for a foundations class. If people are coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we should want to teach them what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But the question really becomes, do we stand when he stands? Do we stand for what he stands for? Or have we discovered other causes? Have we discovered these other causes? Instead of it being out of many, one, it becomes out of one, many. Right? There's one Jesus. How many denominations? Right? Out of many, one. There could be a thousand causes, but there's only one purpose to each of those causes. There could be a thousand causes, one purpose. That purpose is to seek and save that which is lost. That's the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, we flip it over, and all of a sudden it becomes the cause of Jesus Christ are all these other causes. Right? To make it really simple, I I put it to you like this. When we flip it upside down, it becomes an issue of saying, I'll use the refuge as an example. I am not setting out to change the skate culture. It's not what I'm setting out to do. I didn't start the refuge so that I could change the culture of skateboarding or scootering or biking. I didn't set out. I'm using that culture to tell people about Jesus. And it might seem like a slight change, but it's a big deal. Because the big deal is is we're looking for causes. What cause can I find? You look at this young generation, and they're looking for a cause. They're looking for a cause. How can I make a difference? And sometimes we teach them in a manner in which you can make a difference. Use Jesus to make a change. No. You don't use Jesus for a cause. He is the cause. Right? And he talks about that when he points this out. So the first message he ever spoke publicly, or at least is publicly recorded, is this message in which he reads Isaiah 61. Right? We have to understand this. Jesus didn't come to make our lives better. He came to make our lives eternal. Think about that for a moment. Jesus didn't come to make our lives better. Do our lives get better? Yes, but that is not the reason that he came. He came to make our lives eternal. And it's important that we recognize this. The sooner we realize Jesus didn't come to make our lives better, he came to make them eternal. Then we recognize when he makes our life better, there's a reason for it. What is that reason? To seek and save that which is lost. We don't believe in a poverty idea in which God wants us to be poor. We don't be, we're not saying that we can't be rich. We're saying there's a reason why he makes us rich. There's a reason why we live in America. There's a reason why we were blessed to be born and raised or come to this country and look at the freedom that it affords us. There's a purpose to it. That purpose is to seek and save that which is lost. Sometimes we mix it up. Jesus didn't come to make our lives better. If you think about that for a moment, if you say Jesus came to make our lives better, two-thirds of the world, two-thirds of the world live in poverty. They have trouble accessing clean water. 80% of the world, this 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. $300 a month. $3,600 a year. That's what they live on. $3,600, 80% of the world lives on $3,600 a year, $10 or less, right? So if Jesus came to make our lives better, what about them? Right? He didn't come to make our lives better. He may make our life better. I think this reason this country is blessed because its original direction was this cause, the cause of Jesus, right? Right? It, it was Thomas Jefferson who said, no, no, James, James Madison who said the cause of America in one great sense is the cause of Jesus Christ. James Madison, one of the framers of our Constitution. Why did he say that? Because liberty was meant for one cause, Jesus. Prosperity was meant for one cause, Jesus. 
Jesus didn't come to make our lives better. He came to make our lives eternal. Why would Jesus come? He's eternal. He lives forever. Let's just try to grasp. Not we can't, None of us can grasp. Our, our finite minds can't grasp infinity. We can't grasp time travel movies. Give us a break. I mean, it's like, I hate those movies. It gives me a headache. I'm like, I can't understand what's going to happen. Try to grasp infinity. We can't grasp infinity, so let's grasp a million years, two million years. A drop in the bucket to eternity, but two million years. What is our 70 years on this planet in comparison to two million years? It's nothing. It's nothing. Why would Jesus, who's eternal, come into this world only to die a horrific death in it so that he can make that 70 years out of two million years better? And why? Why wouldn't he, at the minute of our confession, snip us right up? The minute I cry out to Jesus and say, save me, forgive me, why doesn't he just go, come on into eternity with me? I'm going to take you out of this wretched brokenness that is your life. You're not going to be bald or short anymore. You're going to go to heaven. Why doesn't he just go like that? Right? And, and instantaneously, I'm in heaven. If that was it, if God said, man, my only purpose is so that you can live a better life, why doesn't he take us to a better life? It's what we say at every funeral. They've gone on to a better life. Jesus makes us better. He helps us in our life for one reason, to reach those that are lost, to reach those that are risking, compromising 70 years for eternity. That's why we're here, right? And we, we lost sight of that. The sooner we realize this, the sooner we'll be of good, a better use for his cause. His last message on earth, was Matthew 28, 18. Go into all the world. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus, first public speaking, what am I here to do? I'm here and have been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to give sight to the blind, to reach those that are captive and set them free. What is my purpose in this place? It's to seek and save the lost. His last words, what does he say? Go now into all the world, making disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've taught you. What has he taught us? He's taught us to love God and love others. Now, I want to, I'm going to, this is so oversimplifying it, but I'm going to do it anyways. When I write a message, the only thing I want you to remember is what I say at the beginning and what I say at the end. I'm just telling you, that's everything I say in between is only designed to reiterate, reinforce, and drive home the point I make at the beginning and the point I make at the end. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. Out of many, one. Right? Heath could say, I want to change the motorcycle culture. And I would say, don't do that. Use the motorcycle culture to reach a lost. Right? Don't try to do something so large and grandiose. We're, we're deceiving ourselves into realizing what's bigger. That he changes an entire culture where all of a sudden now they don't have a bad reputation and they're good people and they do all this. Not that they're bad people. Not that there's anything wrong with that. What? Now that's a big vision and you're like, man, dream big, dream big. Is it? Is it big that he changes a culture that exists in a, in, for 70 years? Is that as big as him reaching somebody who now eternity has changed? 
Is it the fact that he used motorcycles to reach someone that nobody else could reach? And now that person's name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and instead of dying and suffering in darkness, he'll spend eternity with Jesus, the very purpose and cause at which Jesus came and suffered and died. Right? What's a bigger deal? See, we've twisted it around. We flipped it upside down because we think the bigger deal is to change. Oh, let's just make a big impact. I'm going to become an actor so that I can change Hollywood. I'm going to become a writer so I can. I'm going to become a photographer. I'm going to reach the world of photography. No, use photography to tell people about Jesus. I'm all down with that. But just make sure you don't lose sight. When Jesus says go into all the world, he says this. Observe. Teach them to observe. By definition, observe means don't lose sight of. Don't lose sight of. Everything in the middle of this message is designed to drive home that point. Everything in the middle of Jesus' ministry is the same. Jesus said at the beginning, this is my cause. Jesus said at the end, this is my cause. And everything in the middle that he taught us is to drive home that point. I have come to seek and save that which is lost. I have come to seek and save. Does he teach us all these other things? Yes. Does he bless us? Yes. Has he given us authority? Yes. Has he given us the keys to heaven and earth? Yes. Has he said you can step on serpents? And Yes. Has he told us that faith can move mountains? Yes. But he's told us all of those things are designed for one purpose. Seek and save that which is lost. Out of many, one. Can we look at the teachings of Jesus and say, this is Jesus teaching me how to manage my finances. Yes. Jesus teaching me how to take care of health. Yes. Jesus teaching me. Can we find all of those things? Yes. But when we make those things the cause, we flipped it upside down. And out of one become many. So now all of a sudden I look at the teachings of Jesus and I'm focused on discipleship. And all I do, so I'm going to be a discipler. A discipler to what end? Right? Is it so that people become more gifted in understanding the knowledge of the gospel, of how the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus before Jesus even comes? About what, all of these things are good. Am I going to become a theologian? To what end? To what end? Is it to be a theologian? Is it so that I can dispel the myths and the controversies of this person or of that person or of this belief or of that belief? Everything Jesus does in between has one cause, to seek and save that which is lost. And we can look at it and go, God, thank you for giving me this gift. God, thank you for giving me these blessings. God, thank you for financially doing this. God, thank you for the health. Thank you for the miracle. Thank you for the, all of those things that he does, he does for one reason. So that somebody who is condemned to death might find life. That's it. And to not see the kind of focus that God has, to not see the kind of focus that God has for his creation. It is that focused. God doesn't get chased down rabbit holes. We do. Teach them to observe. Do not take your eyes off. What did I teach you? Forget about all the other commandments. They're summed up in two things. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. Does he bless you? Yes, for a reason. Does he heal you? Yes, for a reason. Because let's be honest, we all die. No one gets out of here alive. Right? We all die. So he may make me healthy today, but he, at some point I'm going home. Right? I pray it's before my body goes all sideways, but at some point I'm going to heaven. And when I go to heaven, that's when everything, that's when I get all the healing, the pain, the suffering, it's all gone. 
right? When we recognize this cause, when we understand it in its simplicity, but yet it's unbelievable, deadlocked focus that God has for us, that he so loved the world, then we understand why Paul said, I'm torn between the two. To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord, which I want. Or to stay here, which is far better for you. That's what Paul said. Think about that for a moment. Man, I'm torn between the two. To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. And oh, I want to be with the Lord. But if I stay, it's far better for you. Who was he living for? That's why to me, to die is gain, right? Paul said that, to die is gain. To live is Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, let's put things into perspective. This world sucks. That's what he said. I'm, I'm, that's what he said. It's broken. There's sickness. There's disease. People are robbing each other, raping each other, killing each other. Man, to die is gain. But to live is Christ. Why? Because I have but one purpose. So those that don't know him might know him. Right? When we look at this, we go, what? It is that. The what and the why. Because he loves us. The love of Christ compels us. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the most famous uh, missionaries during the era in World War II in Germany. He was a German pastor who was killed because he was a part of a plot to kill Hitler. Right? He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Don't read it unless you are ready to be wrecked. But I'm reading his biography right now. He says this. We have a problem when we've shifted our lives into the idea of cheap grace instead of costly grace. Cheap grace, where we are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. It's another way of saying faith without works. Saying faith is not alone. Somebody that is accompanied with faith. Faith changes us. The love of Christ compels us. Cheap grace is when he says it's free. And because it's free, it's cheap. But there used to be a time when we used to say this all over the place. Not, there's nothing free. No, there's no such thing as free. Right? It costs somebody. You may, it might be free to you, but it wasn't free. Last year, somebody bought Reagan and I a truck. Brand new truck. 2016 truck. Right? We desperately needed it. And they felt God impressed upon our heart to buy it for us. Right? Now, they bought that truck for us. Now, to us, it was free, right? It was free, but it cost somebody a lot for us to have that free truck, right? When we look at grace as something that's cheap, when we don't recognize that it wasn't cheap, it was costly. It just wasn't costly to us. It's totally different. There are very few days that I don't come out of a store, come out this building, come out of my house and see that truck and think to myself, I can't believe somebody bought us that truck. Where my heart doesn't well up, not just in the fact that God loves us enough to, to ask somebody to buy that truck to us, but that somebody loves us enough to buy us that truck. And not only does it swell up inside of me enough to where I think of them, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful, and, I'm, and I have to ask myself, well, are they ever going to get sick and tired? I can't, I can't continue to tell them, thank you. For a while, I sent pictures of it. But can I say something? It's so funny. All the other vehicles we've ever had, we bought. I bought a truck in 2008. And I let the teenagers beat the crap out of that truck. I mean, kids be like, oh, can I take, oh, yeah, where are you going to go? I'm going to go. 
she's not here, so I won't say her name, but somebody took it to McDonald's and drove it into a pole, you know, came back. It's my truck. I bought that truck. This truck was given. I'm like, give me your scooter. I'll put it in the bed of the truck. Well, I can put it in the bed. No, you give me your scooter. I'll put it in the bed of the truck. Wait a minute. That was a free truck. What do you care? I don't know. I just know that when I realize something that was blessed of me, I treat it differently. When we think we earn God's grace, we treat it differently. When we fail to realize what it costs God for us to be saved. When we forget, it isn't cheap grace. God gave up everything. The Bible says that Jesus laid it all aside. His glory, his omniscience, his omnipresence. He became man. I said God is eternal. God, which is eternal, inserted himself into a moment in time. And the Bible says he didn't consider it to be robbery. God, who is eternal, inserted himself into a moment in time so that he could be reared by his own creation, so he could be scolded by his own creation, raised by his own creation, fed by his own creation, and then mocked, spit on, and crucified by his own creation. Hung on a cross, beaten, whipped. The Bible says he was so beaten you couldn't recognize him. That's how beaten he was. All of which, not so that he could die and go to heaven, so that he could die and go to hell. So that Jesus could experience the utter darkness and emptiness and separateness. That's what the Bible teaches us hell is. Separateness that he didn't want us to experience. For three days, Jesus was apart from God. Here this couple, right? God the Father, God the Son. Here, for all eternity, They had never known separation except for those three days. Except for those three days. Reagan and I have been married for 17 years. I can tell you the longest we've spent apart was four days. Four days. And it was hard. Right? It was. She was at kids camp. She'll tell you it was harder on her. But it was hard on me. Right? So three days they were apart. And they've been together. We've been together since we were 12. They were together for eternity. That's what Jesus paid. He didn't just endure the whip. He didn't just endure the cross. He didn't just endure the shame. He became sin. All of God's wrath, the propitiation. God's wrath was appeased. That's what propitiation means. God's wrath was appeased in Jesus' sacrifice. You want to know what grace cost? It cost God everything. And it cost us nothing. And when we realize what it costs us, then the love of Christ compels us. It compels us. When we realize that we have been so richly blessed for nothing that we have done except confessing in what was done. We respond. That's what it means. The love of Christ compels us. The what and the why. Because he loved us. Because he loved us. That's why. We're still here. Not because he loves us. Why are you still here? Because he loves us. No, 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 no. We're still here because he loves us and that the us includes the entire world. That's why we're still here. Because he loves us. Us meeting us. Everybody. Jesus died for all. Therefore, all have died. That's what it says in the word. Everybody has the potential of going to heaven. Everybody God has designed and loved and purposed to be saved. 
God, we're still here because God loved us. When we realize that, we can figure it out. Because if you know the why, you will figure out the how. And there are many hows. How will you reach the lost? Thousands, if not millions of ways that we can reach a dying world. Millions of ways that we can do something for the kingdom of God. Millions of ways to do that. But out of the millions of ways, there is only one purpose. That's it. Out of the million, there is one. And what is it? To tell the world about Jesus. That's what it is. That's what it all means. We cannot lose sight of that. We tend to think of the out of many becomes one and it becomes the other way around. Out of one becomes many. Out of one, we have people who are ministering through music. Out of one, we become worshipers. Out of one, we become prayer. Yes, God may call you to be a prayer warrior, but for what purpose? You're not praying for other people's lives to get better. You're praying for other people's lives, them to get saved and their lives to get better for a purpose. Like dominoes, it's cascading. When we look at this, we recognize it. Two more things. In the church in in Sydney, it's intentional evangelism. Advancing the cause of Christ. It's intentional evangelism. The reason we discovered and met with this church out of Australia is because the refuge is what they look for. It's intentional. It's a practical way to a spiritual end. That's what it is. What are you doing? Something practical. There's a need in the community to reach kids, to provide a place for them where they can come and have positive influence, to be a refuge so that what's happening in the world around them doesn't end up taking them down or growing inside of them. That's the cause of the refuge, to be a place in which we can gather as many teenagers as we can and then teach them about the love of Jesus Christ and to watch them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ and then to watch them be sent into life with the cause of Jesus Christ. But we use practical means. We have art. We have music. We have automotive. We have the skate park. We have drama. We have ministry. We have outreaches. All these are practical ways in which we seek to provide a spiritual end. This church out of Sydney gives motorcycles to missionaries, builds houses for girls that were sex trafficked, and houses for widows. Right? Which is a big deal. It's a big deal. You have widows in countries in which they can't provide an income, in which their their husbands have passed away. They're still raising children. Right? And one of the things that they say is when we have a home, the people that live in our village, the people that come in from outside our village, they think when you... When a widow has a home, they see a home, and they see a woman, and they see children, their natural conclusion is there's a man. And because they think there's a man, just having the home provides protection. Because now the robbers, they don't go to that home. Because they know without a man in those villages, the women can't have homes. So you have widows living in shacks and shanties all over the world who are being preyed upon by evil men because they don't have a husband. We build homes, I forget what the number is, it's on that sheet that you have, for widows so that we can provide a place for them, so we can help them do that. These are practical ways. Surgery for blind eyes, water wells in in Cambodia, a hospital in the Congo, schools in Vietnam. These are just a few of the things that this church in Australia does and that we partnered with. Last year, we gave $76,000 to these causes. All right. Now we look at those things and we go, why would we do those things? Is it because we seek to make mercy? No. The application is not to be merciful. The application is to be evangelistic. 
The application is that through practical means, we might share with you the gospel. Let me tell you something. There have been story after story after story after story after story of people who have gotten saved, not because somebody preached at them, but because somebody helped them. At the hospital in the Congo, in which there's a large Muslim population, they have seen entire Muslim families convert to Christianity. Why? Because the doctor there was preaching at them? No, because the doctor there said it's free. What do you mean it's free? It was paid for by a church in Australia. What kind of church in Australia would pay for my surgery in the Congo? The Church of Jesus Christ. That's what kind of church. They say, well, I want to learn more about this religion. Let me tell you guys something about Cambodia, and I got to hurry up. I told you, I'm sorry, I have so much information, a message in a year in the making. The church in Cambodia, I, I learned so much about Cambodia while we were in Australia. Do you know that the, they had never heard in Cambodia, never heard of Jesus, never heard of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ had never even touched their shores until 1923. 1923 was the first time a Cambodian heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a Bible wasn't translated into Cambodian until 1953. And it was only a few, a decade, in only a decade was this country even evangelized before Pol Pot raised up the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields. And before you knew it, millions of Cambodians lie dead in the fields because of Pol Pot who literally killed them as they left their, they, they, they convinced them of a lie and they moved in and they killed all of these people, millions of people. Right? And during that time frame, so 1953, they get the gospel in their language. In the 60s, all the way up until 1981, all the way up until 1981, right? And in 1981, they, they, they began to soften because Russia could no longer afford to prop up Cambodia. They pulled all their support out. Cambodia was, or they pulled their support, I mean, out of Vietnam. And once they pulled their support out of Vietnam, Vietnam pulled their support out of Cambodia. And all of a sudden now, the gospel goes back in. And you know what had made the difference in that country? The gospel. Practical, evangelistical, intentional Christians going into that country and telling people about Jesus Christ for the first time. All right, I'm going to jump up. The last thing on this trip that we really, that just stuck out to me was that it says in, the, in Matthew 28, go into all the world. Go into all the world. We have to have risky faith, right? One of the guys that talked, I thought it was humorous. And he said, it says, go into all the world. Did you know that everything that moves has risk? Everything that moves has risk, right? He says, go into all the world. You have to have risky faith. Even walking, you're at risk, right? I, 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 he, just, he, he, he just really drilled it home and he said, faith isn't faith unless it's risky faith. It's not faith unless you're risking something. In fact, the definition of which is to expose yourself to possible loss. To expose yourself to possible loss. This is what it means to have risky faith, to go into all the world. The safest place for a ship may be in the harbor, but it wasn't built to stay in the harbor. It was built to sail the oceans, and there's risk involved. Right? If you can't use risk and your faith in the same sentence, you need to reassess. I believe there's a revival coming to America, but I believe it's coming through this. I believe there's a revival coming, but it's coming through this. You know what's interesting about the church in Sydney is the pastor of that church went to Sydney from America. 
In the 80s, when missions was huge, when, we, when our hearts were so filled and moved by compassion to reach out into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was sent everywhere. Right? And one of them was this pastor who was sent to Sydney as a missionary. And he built a church there that revolved around missions because somehow the message of materialism and self-interest within the Church of America didn't reach it to Sydney's shores. So he continued to focus on going into all the world. He built the church of a thousand people. And of that thousand people, every single year they give a million dollars to missions. And last week I touched on it, but I will briefly share what they are capable of doing with a thousand people, with a thousand Christian believers who are willing to believe in the mission of going into all the world, they have over the course of those 20 years been able to plant churches all over the world at the tune of 15,000 churches. All over the world, churches in India, in which we had five of our missionaries last year killed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches in China, churches in Brazil, churches in Cambodia, churches in Vietnam, churches in Japan, churches all over the world, they've sent these churches. They have churches in Lebanon, and in Lebanon, they're teaching pastors to be plant church, to, cha- to plant churches in Syria. They're ruthless and relentless with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church of 1,000 people gives $1 million and more every single year to share the gospel everywhere. And let me tell you something. Even if every one of those churches only had 10 people in it, you're talking about reaching thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And we know they're not 10. You're talking about half a million people. A church of a 1,000 sharing the gospel with a half a million people. How? Do they all get on planes and go everywhere? Nope. They do take missions trips. They go to see what's going on. They go to serve. They go to love. They go to be a part of it. But that's not how they do it. They take risks. They take risks. That's how they do it. They reach out. And they put themselves in a way through what they call a faith promise. And they reach all the way through it. And here's here's what I, this is, and this is what I think. Really. And I, and I feel like I said everything to to lead up into this moment. I I feel honestly that God has given me a revelation of America. And let me tell you what I think it is. I think America is like Solomon. I think, I know people like to say America is like Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think America is like Sodom and Gomorrah. I think America is like Solomon. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you discover who Solomon was. King Solomon was arrayed in splendor. King Solomon had all the riches of the world. King Solomon had everything at his fingertips. And you know what King Solomon had a lot of? Free time. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you're going to discover a man who set out to find every purpose under the sun. Every purpose. He spent time building an empire. He owned the cattle of a thousand. He Sheep. He had farms. He had concubines he had slaves he had everything he had and he set out to build and build and build and at the end of building he realized it was a chasing after the wind is the word the sentence he liked to use chasing after the wind it was fruitless it was unfulfilling so what did he move on to education so he sought out all the smartest men in all the world and he brought them to his place and he studied and he learned and he and he contemplated and he thought and he thought i can i can learn everything and he 
everything that had ever been written, he crammed into his head. And at the end of which he said, all of it was a chasing after the wind. Why? Because he was unfulfilled. And he said, I learned and I wanted to learn more. Just like the rain flows into the ocean and the ocean is never full. I was unfulfilled through my education. And then he said, I'll go pleasure. And so what did he do? He spent all of his free time on pleasure. Everything the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, everything his eyes laid on, he tried. Every desire his heart wanted, he did. He became a hedonist like no other hedonist, and he wanted nothing but pleasure. And he tried everything he could find his hand to do, and at the end of it, he said, it was a chasing after the wind. It was fruitless and unfulfilling. And at the end of his book, after he tried absolutely everything he could possibly think of, he came to one conclusion, all of which, everything under the sun is a chasing after the wind. The only thing that fulfills us is to love God and to obey his commands. It's the end of his book. To love God and to obey his command. America is Solomon. We don't have to worry. You know what Solomon had? Time. Why did he have time? Because the farmers farmed the field. Unless you have a garden at home, and even if you have a garden at home, you still go to the grocery store. You don't have to look out your window and go, God, if it doesn't rain, we don't eat. You're not worried about whether or not the weeds are growing up, whether or not the cattle are fed. You're not worried. You have free time. Why? Because we've been blessed. Why? Because we have wealth. Why do we have wealth? Because God has blessed us like he blessed Solomon. So what do we do with our time? Some of us pursue building an empire. Some of us pursue cramming as much information into our brain as we possibly can. Some of us pursue all the pleasures our heart could fill. But at the end of which, we will discover it's a chasing after the wind. I believe in my heart the reason America struggles with self-esteem, with depression, why we see more people on pills, why we see more people struggling to not end their own lives. Why do we see everybody searching for a reason? It's because we think we can find in this world that which can satisfy us, can fulfill us. C.S. Lewis says, if you find in your heart something nothing in this world can satisfy, then you were made for another world. And I'll tell you something. We are divine creatures created by God. Our spirits are eternal. And if we continue to chase after the wind, we will never catch it, or worse, we will. And like the dog, chases the rabbit around the track. They tell you every time, the minute the dog catches that rabbit, he's ruined, he'll never race again. Because he's got nothing left to run for. Let me tell you something. When we discover that there are a million ways to serve God, but they all have one cause, we will never catch that cause. We will never live an unfulfilled life. We will find strength that makes no sense. We will find it vision and ideas that we don't recognize where it came from can we build empires yes can we pursue knowledge yes even at the end of it he says don't continue just reading book after book after book i've discovered all of it is a chasing after the wind love god obey his commands there might be a million ways the bible doesn't say don't pursue don't don't go out there and say don't build an empire If God calls you to build an empire, make sure it's for one reason. If God calls you to pursue a musical career, make sure it's for one reason. If God calls you to start a business, make sure it's for one reason. If God calls you, why? Because it's the only reason we're alive. It's the only reason we live. We look at those videos and we see 80% of the world 
struggling. Moms that have to walk three miles to get water every single day, sometimes twice a day. When we hear the stories coming out of a country that means so much to us in Nigeria where people are literally walking into villages and slaughtering women and children. When we hear about what's happening all over the world, can we afford to chase the wind? Because it's not just the world that suffers our distraction, it's us. It's our kids. Because money will never satisfy them. Building a kingdom will never satisfy them. Learning will never satisfy them unless they do it for the very divine reason in which God left us here to do it. To seek and save that which was lost. This week, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. They have a faith promise. This is how they do it. This is what they do. And the vision that they have is to build 10 more churches all over the world. 10 more churches, 1,000 people, a million a year. You think about the numbers. You think about the fact that this is something, not only that God calls us to do, but this is something that we can do. He wants, Pastor Jack wants to build 10 more churches, up to 1,000 people, giving a million dollars to share the gospel all around the world. When you look at what this one church has been able to do all around the world, the world will be drastically impacted by this vision. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the world will be drastically impacted. And I'm believing we will be the first one in America. We will be the first one that raises up a thousand, that reaches out with a million. And let me tell you guys something. We say, this is a big deal. It is a big deal. You know what I thought was so powerful? Is the reality of the promise of God. I sat and walked around that church. I met it as many people in that church as I possibly could while we were there. Every one of them were fulfilled. Every one of them, not just had the joy of the Lord. I mean, there was a sense of purpose in what they did. The guys that guarded the door to the guys that set up the chairs to the to the ladies that, that met you at the front door. I mean, I'm telling you, when you walked in there, there was a sense of God's purpose on them that just oozed. You, and you said, are all their lives perfect? No. No. No, this is a blue-collar town outside of Sydney. They work hard. And if you've ever been to Australia, it's expensive. Gas is six bucks a gallon. They don't get tax exemptions for giving to a church. They gave a million dollars and operated on a million dollars. They have a school on campus. They have a church that's incredible. They have high tech. They're not sacrificing. God is rewarding them for their giving. And you know what's happening is every church that they plant all over the world, they do this. Cambodia, they do this. Two years ago, they had a man in the church in Cambodia who made a faith promise. He faith promised 8,000. He prayed, he prayed, his wife prayed, and they wrote down on a piece of paper, how much money do you think God wants us to give in our faith promise this year? In Cambodia, they sat there, and they wrote the number down, and they both handed each other the number, and it was the same number, $8,000. They made $8,000 a year. They made $8,000 a year. That's what they made. And for six months of that year, they saved and they saved and they saved. And after six months, they had $800. And the wife, for some reason, got up in the middle of the night. God woke her up and said, you need to go give that money to the church. So she took, they had hid it away. And she took it out of where they had hid it. And she took it down to the church and she turned it in. And the next day, her husband lost his job. I thought, what are we doing? What's going to happen? How are we going to be able to manage this? And 
They kept at it. They persevered. They believed God. And within a month, not only did he have another job, by the end of that year, he had gotten a 68% increase in their income. Not only had he gotten another job, a better job, for one of the most powerful, basically for like Bill Gates of Cambodia, he was hired on as his personal assistant. God so favored him, right? God will do what he says he will do. When we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. When we give generously, we will reap generously. That's the word of God. And I know it's fearful. I know it's terrifying. Right? It was scary for Reagan and I. We made our faith promise to Sydney. Right? We did that while we were there. We made our, it was scary. Because all of our money goes here. All, all our extra money. Right? If we can't afford it, we buy it. That who's going to do that, God, if we make this promise? You. Who would, you know what God said to me? You fool. Who's been doing it? That's what he said to me. So did you just ask me that? As fast as I could, I tried to back it, walk it back, but I... They use this faith promise. This is what they do. They ask us three questions. And we're going to pass these out this morning, not to be written, but for this upcoming week. This is a faith promise, and this is how they do it. Three simple questions. They say, we want you to pray about what you can give. Meaning, what, you, what can you afford? What can you afford to give to missions in the world? Right? And what's great about this is missions, they set it up. 65% of what comes in through the faith promise goes to the globe, all around the world. 35% we spend on home missions. 35% we keep in-house so that we can reach our world. Right? So they, they set it up brilliantly. It's a God thing. So you pray, what can you give? What can you afford to give? And then the second thing you ask yourself, what can you afford to give up? What are you willing to give up to raise what you can afford to give? Right? When we were there, I met a kid named Jackson, who when he was eight years old, wrote a faith promise card. He was going to give $8,000, right? In a country where a Happy Meal is 12 bucks, right? It's not cheap. Gas is $6, milk's absurd, right? It's un- unbelievable. $8,000, he prayed and he wrote it down. You know what he prayed? And he prayed, what can I give up? He gave up his birthday. So on his birthday, he asked everybody to come. But he said, instead of bringing a gift, bring me money for my faith promise. Right? And then the third question is, what would require faith to receive? So you ask yourself, what can I afford to give? What can I give up to increase it? And what would be a number that would require faith? Because when we believe in faith, for what we're giving. It's given in faith. And that which is given in faith, the Bible teaches us in Corinthians, and multiplied. Not only does it multiply the hand that gives it, but it multiplies what's given and it multiplies to the cause in which it's given. That's what it teaches us. When it's given in faith, it multiplies the hand that gives it, it multiplies that which is given, and it multiplies to the cause at which it was given. If this is a, if there's ever been a church that should recognize the power of that verse, it is this church. It is this church, right? This church gives more financially to a cause you do not directly benefit. In fact, to a cause that endangers your life sometimes when you walk through those doors. You give consistently year after year to a cause that really doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't matter. You all, it obviously matters. But to a cause that doesn't directly benefit you. If there's ever been a church that can look at it and say, God blesses the hand, blesses the gift, blesses the cause. This is a faith promise, not a pledge. Nobody will call you. It's a promise. 
in which we say, God, what can I give? What can I give up? And what would require faith? And I look at that and I say, let's be a church that lives on purpose. Let's be a church that recognizes while there may be a thousand different ways we're going to serve God, there is only one purpose for our serving. Let us not lose sight of that. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. I wrote down in my notes, what if? Pastor Scott talked about the woman who broke open the perfume. And Judas is the one that yells at her and says, do you know how many people we could have fed how many poor people we could have fed. And Jesus' response has always seemed cold to me. He says, the poor you'll have with you always, but I won't always be here. Later on, Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's house. Martha's working away and Mary's sitting at his feet, basking in his presence. And Martha's frustrated and she says, Jesus, do you care that I'm doing all the work? And Jesus again says, she's doing the right thing. Why are you so busy? For a long time, I've always thought, don't get too busy. Don't get too busy. And there is balance to that. But what if? What if the meaning of those stories is the opposite? What if the meaning of those stories is the opposite? And Jesus says, I won't always be here. Take the time while I'm here. Guess where he will always be? In heaven. He'll always be there. You know what we're going to do there? We're going to worship. We're going to dance. We're going to celebrate. I find too often my heart wants to celebrate God, celebrate his presence, enjoy. It's like, God, I, I, but what about the work? What about the cause? Do we want to go to heaven and celebrate and celebrate and celebrate knowing we could have done more? We could have reached more? We could have accomplished more? The churches in Africa, in Nairobi, in Brazil, they all do faith promises. That, that's This year, that's what just blew my... That, that, for me, was the thing that punched me in the face. When I heard about churches that were planted in Africa, that were doing faith promises for the churches they planted in Africa, that when churches in this small, tiny village were that we have to support, were making promises because they believed in one common idea, not just the cause of Christ, but this thought, if I have something, then I have something to give. If I have something, then I have something to give. And they did they did faith promises. And they were only be able to get enough to buy a sound system, but they packed that sound system up and they drove it through t- two war-torn regions to get it to the church that they had planted in Chad, one of the most dangerous places in that entire continent. Why? Because everything we've been left here to do is for one reason. I know it's not attractive, and right now it seems oddly un-American. But let me tell you something. It is very much the reason we still live and breathe. The cause of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is so... When I say I believe with my whole heart, I think to myself, what would be better for our kids? Not just my kids, but my kids in the refuge. What would be better for them than to realize that God can use them in a way to change lives all over the world? That not only will they have the opportunity to go to Cambodia and to pray and to minister and share the gospel, but that they can live their faith out on a continent halfway around the world and they can live it out in such a way 
that not only are acts of mercy being done on their behalf, but that people are finding hope in the name of Jesus because of their faith, because of their sacrifice, because they realize that no matter what God has given them, talent, possessions, opportunities, he's given them for one reason, to reach the lost. Every day we wake up, we wake up into the luxury of the knowledge of a God that loved us so much that he called us by name, that he beckoned us, that his Holy Spirit literally whispered, Dan, come to me. I've made you, I've created you, and I love you. I've prepared a place for you in all of eternity. Every day I wake up, please let me never lose sight so that I might share that same hope with those that wake up without it. God, you're so amazing. You're so loving. You're so compassionate and you're so patient. Plant a fire in our hearts, a passion for the lost. Reveal to us, God, ways in which we can do more. Show us, Lord Jesus, the areas in our life in which we're chasing after the wind. Show us areas in our life, Lord Jesus, in which maybe we thought it was the main purpose, but it's just part. It's just the thing you've intended to use for the real purpose. Help us, God, to know, Lord Jesus, that there is a world out there and that you did send your son to die for the world. Not for America, for Arizona, not just for the Refuge and Imaginations Church, but for the world. Let us be a voice. Let us be a hand. Let us be a water well. Let us be a hospital. Let us be an orphanage. Let us, Lord Jesus, resound the sounds of grace all over the world, in the darkest places, into the loneliest hearts, into the broken homes, into the people who are thinking life isn't worth it, into the abused orphan. You love them. And how will they know if no one tells them? Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you for your blessings. I thank you that sometimes I can think I don't have much, but today I'm reminded that I have quite a bit. Speak to us, God. Help us realize if we've got something, we've got something to give. In the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope it blessed and encouraged you. Join us live on Sunday or at our midweek Connect Small Group meetings in North Phoenix, Arizona.